It's good to be back. Actually, I was just thinking, I think this is the first official church service I've been involved in in almost three And it's good to see loved ones that we haven't seen. I plan to bring a message this morning that is very similar to one I shared with Mount Hermon about a month ago. Now, that wasn't an official church service. I went to Mount Hermon and they recorded that service to be broadcast later. And so that wasn't really a church service. That's why uh, we were to a small wedding in the meetings then just recently. Very small crowd outdoors. We didn't socialize. We just were there and left. I will say this, that <clears throat> Marie is considering herself under official quarantine yet due to her health issues. And of course, things that I'm really closely associated with her, I I'm supposed to kind of be in quarantine. So I try to be very careful. I wear gloves. I wear masks. I'm not this morning. We're outdoors. I'm trying to keep my distance. You see, my chair is six feet. And I didn't get out my tape measure, but I was trying to be careful. So uh, I don't feel like I'm back to normal. I want to thank you for your prayers on my behalf. Um, I'm a lot better than I was a month or two ago, a month ago especially, and I was supposed to be on the calendar to preach at Mount Hermon almost two months ago, but because of what happened to me, I was incapacitated, and I asked someone else to step in and take my place. Thought maybe next week I'd be better, and the next week rolled around, and I hadn't changed. So I asked the next brother on the calendar to trade with me again, and I did that. I thought, well, by, certainly by next Sunday, I'll be doing a lot better. I didn't know what the doctors knew I discovered, when I first talked to them and kind of figured out my problem, I was appalled when they gave me two months' worth of pain pills. And I thought they just missed, they just misjudged. Well, I think they were telling me something. <clears throat> I did go to Mount Hermon. I set to give this message, and I paid for it in pain on the way home and afterwards. But I'm not sorry I did it. But I'm just saying, you might think, well, what was wrong? Why didn't I just go on from there? I did that. It's been a very slow process. And uh, I'll, I'll say this just for interest's sake. I'm trying real hard not to limp. Marie said one day, your limping is terrible. And it might be becoming a habit. I, I didn't hit her, but uh, really, I wasn't really tempted. But I didn't think she understood but you know, I took I took to heart what she said, and I decided it's time to start trying to not limp. Be sure it's not a habit. Well, I knew it wasn't a habit. I knew there was physical issues, but I forced myself to endure some extra pain and, and try to walk more normal, and I discovered something. Well, maybe I should explain just a little bit for some of you that don't understand my problem. Uh, they diagnosed a uh, a swollen or a protruding disc in my back. And this is not uncommon. Other people experienced it. Now I feel for them more than I ever could have. But it it compromised the nerves that that went goes to the inside of my left leg. And so that nerve, those nerves just went crazy. They overworked and sent, sent uh, signals down that leg every chance they got. Even times I don't think they had a chance. They just sent electricity down that leg just for the fun of it and the more it happened the, the more it uh, put pain in my leg I, my leg felt like it was on fire for at least two months 
I could barely touch it, and it's still that way some. But it affected the muscles, and I discovered that what what was happening, because of the the signals being really messed up in the nerve system, the involuntary nerves weren't functioning. That's why I was limping. My leg didn't go like it normally did because it wasn't getting the signals to do it. And so I started practicing walking again in a normal fashion. I had to take every step. I had to make that leg do what it was supposed to. It was not involuntary. I had to think it through, and I got it to work in fairly well. Then I discovered that because I did that, the voluntary uh, sensations, nerve fires, firings were starting to happen. And now I can almost walk normal. It's a little bit of pain involved, extra pain, but I, it's it's working. So I'm uh, just explaining. A week ago, I, I limped a lot worse, and I'm thankful that I'm, I'm on the mend. I think it was Tuesday last week, I told Marie, I said, you know, I think today is a turning point in my, I got up and I walked further than usual without a cramp in my, and I was excited. And it's been doing better ever since. So thanks for your prayers. This morning's message is, is one, um, the reason I explained that somewhat was because I'm going to use that for an illustration somewhat in the message. Uh, it's kind of a personal message, uh, sharing some personal things. But God has been at work in my life, and I want to uh, share with you what he's been doing. And uh, I want to say, I-, I wondered if I should bring another, bring this message, one that I had already shared earlier with another congregation, and some of you could have seen it because it was recorded, but I uh, am convinced this morning that it is appropriate with the way things have gone in this service already. The songs that were sang, the uh, meditation that we were given, uh, were prelude to what I want to share very appropriately. Even the songs we sang. I brought the songbook up here because I wanted to share. Uh, I've always appreciated Brother Roy's uh, and others too, but I thank Brother Roy occasionally for uh, thinking through his song selections and being so appropriate. He didn't know what I was going to share, and often the Spirit directs in this, and, and there's things we can just glean from what happens, but um, this plea of Brother, uh, uh, Brother Charles Wesley to God in this song, give me to bear thy easy yoke and every moment watch and pray and still and still to things eternal um, look and hasten to thy glorious day for thee delightfully employ whatever thy boundless grace hath given and run my course with even joy and closely walk with thee to one of the things that I've been um, involved in in my life in the last months has been a prayer for revival a prayer for revival in my life a prayer for revival for the church I'm concerned about the way the, the society around us does affect us. The experiences of life, the challenges of life can, can undermine some of our, our, basic, um, our basic convictions and relationship with God. And I, I was concerned that that is happening in my life. And so I was praying for a revival and it's interesting that your prayer for me actually was answered by some of the things that have happened that I've had to endure as I see it looking back. The message title this morning is 
God wants you beautiful. That's a strange sounding title, probably. You know, there's there's this tendency, all of us, to want to be appreciated and accepted well with others, and we pay kind of pay attention to how we present ourselves, some more than others. And we tend to think about maybe the ladies are involved in this more than the men. And I think it's true. I think it tends to be that nature we tend to be natured that way. And it's even interesting that that when God had had uh, Moses make things out of brass back there in the wilderness, he asked for the women's looking glasses to make the, uh, the, the uh, labor. And that labor stood for a mirror. And it had water in it. And that water represented the word of God and represented the mirror that we look into to see how we're doing, how we look. Are we beautiful to God? Instead of the looking glass that we tend to look in to see if we're going to be beautiful enough for other people. And so I want us to think about that God does want us beautiful. And I take that from um, something that he said through the prophet Isaiah or Ezekiel. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to think a bit, a bit more about God's plan and preparation for man. When God created us, he created us to have the capability, the capacity to relate to him on a personal basis. And Brother Justin mentioned that this morning. And he wanted that relationship to be a blessed relationship. God wanted to relate to us in a way that, that his virtue could be our virtue. His holiness could be our holiness. His righteousness, our righteousness. So we could, we could communicate, commune together. That was God's design. That was his desire. And when that was, it, that was the way it was, it was beautiful to God. Holy man and, and righteous man was God's desire in his do you know that relation? And, and also, then there's, there was something that God designed in that, in that whole um, plan was that that relationship between man and God of, of reflecting the reality of who God was in the life of man was based on man's volition or man's desire to choose. And that meant that it was a real, sincere, responsive relationship. And that's what God wanted. And that's why he, he, he created us with the opportunity of choice and will. Was so that he, knew, he knows when we voluntarily reach out to him in love and seek relationship, then it's sincere, it's real. And that's what he wants. But it also brings the problem of if we choose otherwise, it destroys that relationship. And that's what happened there in the garden. Man was tempted, challenging that that volition and that that uh, uh, choice of the will, and they took the the wrong course. They they chose their own will rather than God's will, and it brought sin into the picture. It was rebellion, and it severed that relationship. But God, in His mercy, has provided a way back to that relationship. We still have the opportunity to choose. We still have the opportunity to accept the mercy that He created, or that He that is part of His nature. It gives us the opportunity to come back and develop that relationship and have that relationship and be beautiful in his sight. I want us to take some time to look at what beauty is in God's sight. And so it's, uh, I will say this, that when uh, in the beginning, it's in Genesis 1.31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was beautiful. Everything was perfect. 
And I'm going to back up and just make a little uh, comment here about the way the message came together, this message. A couple of weeks before I was supposed to preach at Mount Hermon, while I was still in fairly good health, I was listening to messages that were being preached. You know, the advantage of staying home and listening to a message is that you can multiply that. You can listen to two or three messages in one Sunday. And that's what I was doing. I was listening to this church, that church, and kind of stayed in tune with the, the Mount, the, the uh, Pike and Mount Hermon. And, and uh, I was hearing messages that I found an interesting subject that was touched on in Scripture in several of them, and it got my attention. And it was this thing of suffering. And so I wanted to develop that thought and, and what it really means. And so I came up with a subject, a, a message title, that was The Paradox of Suffering. And as I studied that and, and was preparing for that, I looked up the definition of suffering and, and so on, and little did I know that God was going to answer my prayer for bringing revival in my life by giving me a first-hand example, illustration of what this all was about. And so uh, things began to develop, and the message started to string itself out. I began to learn more things. I got personal experience in some of these things, and the message changed. I realized there was more than just suffering involved, in, and what suffering is about is is only part of a big package, a big picture. And so, as it turned out, I've got a number of issues or items that relate to our relationship with God, and I've looked and I'm looking at them from the perspective of the paradox that is involved in each one. And so this morning we're going to look at a number of paradoxes that and, and I'll explain a paradox in a little bit. But there are paradoxes that help us realize that when God has something good, there's actually a negative aspect, a mirroring, a, a mirror of a negative aspect of that that can happen if we're not in right relationship with God. And so I want to look at this definition of a paradox. I looked it up, and it says it a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement for propos or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Now, that doesn't exactly fit everything I'm going to say this morning, but it gives you a little idea. The synonyms for um, a paradox are contradiction, self-contradiction, inconsistency, incongruity, Anomaly, conflict, absurdity, oddity, and I can't say that word. An enigma. An, an enigma. There you got it. And so there's things that you look at and you say, that's this. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe that's this. That's kind of what a paradox is. Uh, it can have double meaning. First of all, I want to look at the paradox of beauty. We talked about God wants us beautiful. I'm going to look at that paradox a little bit. And that takes us then to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. And I have all my text printed out here to make it easier for me to page through this morning. Uh, I often do it that way, but especially this morning. Ezekiel 16, verse 8, it says, that's the beginning. I'll read a number of verses here. I'm not going to get into the whole passage, but I just want to pick out this, this concept that what God wants and what happens in the natural man's experience. Now, when I passed by thee, and Ezekiel is writing to the, the Jewish, uh, to the children of Israel, and he's bringing God's voice, God's concern to them. 
And so he's the voice of God to them. And that's what he's saying here. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. This would be a reference to when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were not a comely people. They were not beautiful. They were like Egyptians. They had problems worshiping the same idols. They were not a beautiful people. But it says, God tells them, when it came time for our relationship to develop, I brought thee out. I spread my skirt over you. And of course, that's, that's got the reference to uh, Old Testament and Jewish uh, marriage practices, uh, engagement practices, and so on. He says, and I made you mine. I entered into covenant. And then he says, verse 9, then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee. I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with, with broidered work. And shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put braces upon thy hands, and chains on thy neck, and I put a jewel in thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and beautiful, a beautiful crown upon thy head. Thus, thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil. And thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect. It was perfect through thy comeliness. Excuse me, I didn't say that right. It was perfect through my comeliness. Comeliness. That's God speaking. It was because I was beautiful that I made you beautiful. He says, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. And so God was responsible for the things that he put into their life experience to make them what he wanted them to be, to make them beautiful in his sight, and actually beautiful to the world, he says. Now, I want to just pause here and just insert a little thought to keep us on track. We live in a world that would take that passage and say, see there, God wants us to deck ourselves, ornament ourselves so we can show that we're beautiful that God loves us and so on. I don't know what all they think. But I want to take us to the New Testament, the responsibility for us, because in the Old Testament setting, the temporal was the way God helped people get to where he needed them to get to in their understanding of things. And so he allowed for these things to be symbols in their lives of, of deeper meaning. But look what we have in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting of hair and wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in which, in that which is corruptible, even the ornament of a, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. God sees the beauty of a heart that has the virtue of God being expressed. We'll get into that just a little bit in another paradox. But notice what it says here. Ezekiel 16, 15 then goes on to say, but thou distrust in thine own beauty. God had made them beautiful. He made them someone to look up to and they began to look at themselves as, oh, look what we are. Look how beautiful we are. We are something. <clears throat> it says, but thou 
thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and played the harlot because of thy renown, and pouredest out thy fornication on everyone that passed by, and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred. So their beauty became something that was abhorred. It was a, an abomination. There's the paradox of beauty. When we try to become beautiful in our own, in our own way after the world, and use it for our own gratification and 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 the focus on ourselves rather than God. That beauty becomes something that is opposite of beauty. There's the paradox, and that can happen to us. We can feel like we are, we are somebody. We have we have a standard. We are set apart. I heard somebody say here this morning, Brother Justin, that we can kind of compare ourselves with the world system and say, "Wow, we've got it together." You know, we can. And in a sense, we do. But if we have the wrong attitude about that, that doesn't glorify God. If we don't give God the glory and seek him for his grace to keep it happening, then we're taking upon ourselves to say, oh, we're beautiful, look at us. And that doesn't register well with God in his perspective. And so that brings me to the next par uh, paradox. And I'm shifting paradoxes here a little bit because of what I, I want us to see, the flow. So I'm shifting my notes just a little bit. I want to look at the paradox of righteousness. Recently, I was reading from Romans. Well, I guess it's been a little, bit, a little while now, but I was reading from Romans chapter 8. And it was just amazing what, what unfolded in my mind as I was seeing how this tied in with everything else. Well, before I go, I'm going to give you the definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. It has to do with morality. Man's righteousness versus, versus God's righteousness. So in Romans chapter, actually, I, I saw this in Romans chapter 10, and then I saw it in Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But in Romans 10, 3, it says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, notice what it says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They hadn't submitted to God's righteousness. They were thinking they could do their own thing and be righteous. They could be self-righteous. And that was good enough or that was appropriate. But it's interesting, it says they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. This word submitted has to do with surrender, by giving up our right to con of control. And so uh, that can be compared to um, the, the uh, thought of suffering in the flesh. And I want to talk about the paradox of suffering. Remember, I said that was going to be the message to start with, but we'll get there in a little bit. But suffering in the flesh is when we give up our will. It hurts. We have our will, we have our desires, we have things we want to do, we want to do it our way, and it conflicts with what God's will is, we discover, and there's, there's, there's some suffering in our carnal will and perspective of, I want to do it my way. That has to die, and that hurts. That, that doesn't feel good. It goes on in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, a number of verses, for our hope, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye also be of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, that ye be ignorant of the trouble which came to us in Asia. We were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death on ourselves, 
that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. I want to go back down to that kind of introduces. No, I'm not quite finished with this one on righteousness. Let's go a little further. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them which perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And after that, and after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them which that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men are called after flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and hath and base things of the world to confound to things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him ye are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made, un wisdom, made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. <clears throat> now, the one thing I want to mention about righteousness is that it is, we can consider it the standard of God's virtue. You see, I had an illustration when I brought this message at Mount Hermon. I had a children's story, and I, I uh, explained the life of a blacksmith a little bit and some of what he does and why he does it. And the comparison of some of his tools to bring about the purposes that he determines in his mind is uh, he uses an anvil, and I should have brought up my little anvil and, and hammer, I guess, to show you. I've had a children's meeting here before, I think, and done that, but we have new children here now. But the anvil is, is kind of like the standard. It's what you use to square things up with. It's You bring that piece of iron over to the anvil, and if you want to make it straight, you lay it on there, and you, you, pound, out, you pound it out while it's hot and get it straightened out. And so that anvil is, is a little bit like the standard of what's right. And, it stand, and I want to say it symbolizes the righteousness of God. God has a standard. It's straight. It doesn't change. And we need to come into conformity to that standard. And it, it's painful sometimes when God has to bring us into that, conform us into that standard of righteousness. <clears throat> but, you know, there's something about righteousness that we get caught up in. We, uh, we make mistakes sometimes, and that is we can feel like we have uh, accomplished some things in our life, and we are, have it down pat. I've already mentioned this already in passing, that we sometimes have already practiced the virtues of God in our life, and we have practiced the Christian life, and we can actually kind of do it like walking. We don't have to think about it. It just happens. Like, you know, we're supposed to function when we walk. 
And we can actually begin to think that we're pretty good. We have figured out how to be right. And we're getting along pretty good, getting it accomplished. That's the paradox of righteousness. True righteousness. When we're really operating according to the standard of God, we're going to understand that every day to carry out the righteousness of God in our life, we have, be, we have to have a relationship with God. We have to be a uh, recipient of the grace of God, and that grace is what is allowing us and, and positioning us in a position of righteousness before God. It's not us that work. If it is, it's a righteousness according to a standard. It's not righteousness in God's perspective. And that brings me to the next paradox, the paradox of suffering. Now, I already mentioned it a little bit, and I've gone over some verses that pointed to it. But the paradox of suffering, in 1 Peter 4, chapter 1, several verses here, it says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of the time of the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. That's God's plan for us that we live according to his will. And when we don't function according to his will, then we're outside of his will and we're operating in our own righteousness, if we're even attempting righteousness. And so we have the, the uh, challenge of getting it right. And suffering is something that God uses and allows to keep things in perspective. Now, the natural inclination of the fallen nature is to restore itself to blessedness and happiness and, yes, even righteousness by our own pursuits and reasoning abilities. Now, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't have put the word righteous in there because uh, it fits, but only to those who profess Christianity. Those who do not profess Christianity actually can wish for happiness and, and restoration to God's original plan of of true happiness, but if they're not willing to give up their own will and suffer the death of their will, they're going to be doing it on their own on their own basis, and they might be attempting to restore this blessedness by simply a pursuit of happiness. And we see that a lot around us, and it influences us. There's a lot of ways that you can you can try to experience the blessedness of life. There's pleasure. There's uh, uh, having control by having enough money, not needing to trust God, but having enough money, we can, we can figure things out and do things our own way to, to get, to, to find, um, to meet the demands of our own desires. You know, we live in a land that promotes the idea that everybody has the right to happiness. But true blessedness only can come when we have found ourselves submitted to the righteousness of God. And to bypass God's plan for this brings consequences. To bypass obedience to God's will and uh, can invoke consequences of sin, uh, the consequences of the sin curse, and we find ourselves searching for fulfillment and finding emptiness. And so we, uh, we need to experience suffering to that will of finding our own way and find the blessedness of God's righteousness in our life and surrendering to his righteousness. And so suffering is, is a tool that God is allowed to help put us where he wants us. Suffering 
by giving up this right to self-fulfillment will open the opportunity to let God bring his blessedness and joy and spiritual fulfillment and that divine relationship to fruition. That's what God's design and, and, and will is. So if we allow that process to happen, we will experience suffering in our carnal ambitions and direction in life. That will have to come uh, We'll have to come to the point of crucifying that. And, and that crucifying has to happen on a daily basis. And it carries some pain with it, some suffering. And so I want us to think a little bit about what's the purpose of suffering? How does it work? Well, I'm, I'm just going to say there's a lot of ways we could uh, understand and define this. But this is what I have to share. To create an awareness that something is out of order and needs attention before more serious consequences develop. When there's some pain happening in our life, it's God's wake-up call to be aware that something needs attention to be changed. I went to uh, someone for help on my back here recently, a uh, massage therapist, to try to see if he could help get the things uh, limbered up and working a little better. And he told me something that I found was interesting, and I remembered he told me this years ago, and I'd forgotten it. But he said, pain has a purpose. It's your body's prayer to you to pay attention to what it needs. I thought that was interesting. And that's true. That's just what I said. Suffering is God's way of getting our attention. Something needs attention in our life. And if we are suffering, if in other words, if dying to some self-interest and conflict of our will with God's and there's suffering there, that suffering needs to go away because when we surrender, we find healing. The suffering ends. There's joy. There's peace. It's not a constant suffering. But there's this thing, aspect of suffering as we make that adjustment to God's way and God's will. And when the, our, our own personal rationale or will or whatever you want to call it has been surrendered, then we don't need the suffering anymore to get in tune with God because we're there. And so our body will, will have pain in different areas and so on and it's saying there's something out of adjustment here there's something out of the way here uh, take care of me be careful be, pay attention there's something here that needs attention now we can't get rid of all suffering in our body because there's no magic way to just submit to a problem and get it over with in the physical body uh, there's a sense in that by paying attention to the doctor sometimes and listening to them and doing what they suggest can get us relief and that's the surrender of our will with their will and it kind of works that way, but it, I, I wish it worked easier that way. I wish it was, uh, I wish it was just easier to get a hold of and say, fix this tomorrow and it's fixed. Um, I discovered in this back problem that it's pretty well understood that it's going to be a long time and it has to happen on its own. And that, that really was a hard pill. That, that, that was suffering in thinking that through or coming to that reality. Well, a remedy for the underlying, uh, oh, uh, we, need, we need to let uh, suffering teach us that there's a need for a problem to be fixed. Uh, to bring a, a remedy to the underlying problem that's in our life can also serve to bring us to a point of helplessness that encourages the surrender to accept help and to bring about a right correction. And <clears throat> this can happen in our bodies as well, and it happened to me. Um, when one has a physical injury, there often is a suffering. There is also a suffering um, 
physically and emotionally. The disappointment, the, the struggle can be a, a point of suffering. Uh, the disappointment of being restricted of and having limitations brings us to the reality that we need to submit to the circumstance beyond one's desire or design. Uh, early on, before I experienced all the pain, I looked up the definition of pain. This is what it said. It's, it says the suffering of or discomfort which the reality, with the reality that something that is, is not normal, there's an illness or an injury, and it causes this, this suffering that we call pain. I looked up the word suffering. And said, it's defined this way. It uses pain to define it. It says the pain that results from a disruption of normal processes to be subjected to something bad or unpleasant. That's pain. Well, I'll get to my personal example. My present condition or my condition that I experienced seemed to be the result of my prayers for revival for myself and for the church at large. It was a slow process for me to connect the dots as to what God was up to beginning to answer my prayer. For weeks, I was not able to uh, as much as I was not able to do much and because of the pain in my left leg, I put off this preaching assignment. I already mentioned that. But things got worse. <clears throat> then one night, things got intense. And I have this written down so I get it right. I was in extreme pain. Now, maybe I didn't say it yet, but I hadn't slept in my bed for at least two weeks because it was too painful. But that night, the pain was so unbearable. I wanted to be able to find rest and relief, but it seemed out of reach. I cried out to God and began to realize he wanted my attention. He revealed to me that I had come to, the, to trust in my past righteousness instead of a fresh, diligent quest to experience this grace, his grace and spirit's power and my daily renewal of faith and daily uh, renewal of my relationship with him. In other words, as I was in that pain, I was crying out to God for help I realized that he wanted me to look deeper into my heart. And I'm not sure if it was what I had read from Scripture, just a sense of, of being honest with myself, because I, I, was, I was coming to that point of surrender. God, whatever. I want to know what you're thinking. I can't bear this. And I realized that a slow, gradual thing had been happening in my life. It wasn't an outright rejection of of God or anything. It was just that, simp that simply I was running on reserve in my spiritual life. I was, and without realizing that I felt like I had reached enough righteousness in my life or whatever that, that I could go on. It was, it, I didn't really have to seek God and cultivate that relationship like he wanted, like I really knew I needed. I was busy. I just didn't take time out for, for prayer and Bible study like I should. And when I did, it didn't have that that meaning, that fulfillment, that joy. But I wasn't really all that much aware of it. I sensed that I needed revival because we always do. But I, I couldn't lay a finger on it. I didn't realize there was anything really outstanding. But God was answering prayer. I realized that I needed to be operating daily from a fresh experience of God's grace working in my life on a daily basis. And that when that happened, then what happens is true righteousness before God. That's the beauty that God was looking for in my life. He wasn't seeing that dependency on him that he wanted. And so I, I cried out in 
and asked for forgiveness. And I found peace. I found a peace that had slowly eroded from my life, and I was hardly aware of it. And I want to say this morning, I thank God for his mercy and his love that brought restoration to my soul. Your prayers for my physical distress and my prayers for revival were answered, but not the way I was expecting. However, I would not want it any other way. I'm glad that God answered that prayer. It seemed like that's what it took for me to see where I was. Like I say, I wasn't down and out. I wasn't rebellious. It was simply that I was coasting on my on the coattails of past experience of righteousness in my life. Let's keep praying for each other and not faint, by the way. I want to share with you some verses that I have uh, printed out here that, that that night when I was seeking God, these are some verses that he brought to my mind and, and helped me understand my, where I was and my new found peace with him. In Job 42, verse 1, and following a few verses, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. There was an awakening in my life. I knew what God wanted. I knew what was supposed to happen. I thought it was happening. I had heard by the ear. There was a sense in which my eyes had been opened, and I saw God in a different perspective. Relationship was what he wants, not just somebody that's operating properly. Across the page, I noticed this verse in Psalm chapter 4, verse 1. Hear me when I call, O my God of righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. In Deuteronomy 21, 8, it says, And, I shall, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently, diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments, which I have commanded thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. The word there that stood out to me was hearken diligently. That's God's call to us to maintain that relationship. Some of the verses that, that I want to share about suffering and the effects it has on us came out this morning, Brother Justin shared. But I want to go over them just a little bit again. Hebrews chapter 12 <clears throat> Uh, and, and this goes right along with the idea of, of the blacksmith. You know, the blacksmith puts the, this, the, and some of you younger ones maybe don't know what a blacksmith is. He was the man that, that worked with iron and steel and made things, made pieces and parts and equipment, and fixed things for anybody in the community. He made horseshoes and put them on horses, but he also uh, would design things and just make tools and, and parts that were needed. That was... But, but he had a, a technique. He, he had a, a forge. It was a place where he had, a, he had put coal in there, and he got that coal burning, and he had billows to make extra air go and make it extremely hot. And he put the steel in that, in that uh, fire, and it would, it would get red hot. And when it was red hot, he could bring it out to that anvil. And I remember I'm, I said that anvil is the standard of righteousness. And he used the hammer, which I want to compare to the word of God and the gospel. It's, it's God's influence to bring us to that standard of righteousness. But we have to be supple. We need to be malleable. 
And that's what, that's what the red hot heat does in that steel. When steel is red hot, it's just like clay. Now, you can't touch it and do anything. That's why you need a hammer or plowers or the tongs. And you can shape it. You can twist it. You can make something beautiful out of it. But it has to yield to the master's hand and conform to what he wants, what's in his mind. But that fire in there is like the suffering we go through. It's what brings us to surrender so God can bend us and shape us and bring, to about, bring about that perfect holiness that he's looking for and that we can conform to that, that standard of righteousness he's looking for. And that process is not easy. In Hebrews 12 to 5, it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God, now, God dealeth with you as with sons. If you endure chastening, the difference between us and the blacksmith's iron or steel that he's, he's shaping, that that, that uh, object that he's working with has no choice in the matter. It will become what the blacksmith wants it to because it yields. It does what he says. As long as it's hot, it cannot change what he wants. It, it transforms to what's in his mind. The difference with us is we have that volition. We have the choice. And we have to choose to stay in the fire. We need to choose to stay in the hand of the blacksmith and to allow the pain to bring about the right results. You know, pain can cause us to become hard and bitter and angry if we don't respond in submission. The truth is, the blacksmith, in the process of making something and tempering it to make it really worth something, make it hard so it can... Uh, a chisel or a punch so that it has its uh, the character that it actually can work and cut through steel has to be tempered. It needs to be hardened. And in the process, heat is used for that. And But uh, you heat up the, pro the, the steel red hot and you douse it in water immediately. And when you do that, you just, you just make it extremely hard, so hard that if you drop it on the floor, it would break. It's so hard and brittle. And too often there have been men, people, that God has wanted to make something beautiful out of and they've resisted God and jumped out of his hand and their life was shattered in terms of their benefit to God. And that can happen to us. Uh, when, we, when we are submitted to God, surrendered to God, then he, he can make things happen in our life. He can use his power to bring about that righteousness in the way he wants it to happen. But it doesn't always work out like it could. And that's where the paradox comes in. When there is a breakdown in the consistency of this righteous reality, we are made aware of the need for corrective action by the truth of God's standard, by his spirit through the word of God, by his spirit through the word of God, or by um, exhortation of other Christians, or simply by our conscience at work. Sometimes it can be a combination of some or all of these that God uses to bring us to an awareness of our need to be consistent with his standard of righteousness. The corrective procedure is to repent and accept forgiveness and again by faith receive the grace or the unlimited ability to live righteously. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now some have incorrectly read that verse and they didn't diagram it right. And they say, For by, for by grace, no, no, they say, For by grace are you saved 
through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and the it, they say, is faith. But the it there is grace. It's by grace we are saved. It's God's power at work in us because of our faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It's God's grace that saves us. But our faith makes it happen. He goes on to say, Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And I put in parentheses there, works of righteousness, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now I want to look quickly at the paradox of works. Now, maybe I didn't explain the paradox of power. There's times when we, uh, the, that we live after our own righteousness and we are experiencing what we think is, is power and it's not the grace of God at work and so it's a paradoxical power. It's not really the true power of grace in our life. And it's truly God's grace, his power. Uh, it's his spirit at work bringing about the righteousness that, that, that shows God as who he is. It, it reveals the standard of God by our life's experience. But it needs to be because of that relationship on a daily basis of experiencing the grace of God flowing in and through us. Now, let's look at the paradox of works. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and, be and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. In other words, it already is in, in consistency with the perfect standard of righteousness. There's no more law needed because it's already there. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And you see, that's the way we get there. It's suffering in the flesh that we can experience the power and the grace of God at work. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And that is a demonstration of works that happen from God making it happen. Oh, there's another part of that verse I didn't read. Which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, the result of grace demonstrated by good works. Another verse, actually I had a double print there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation or our, our function of life in this world, and more abundantly to you word. Again, pointing out the fact that it's God's grace at work or it's not authentic. 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of, Jesus, our, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a couple verses I wanted to bring up here yet uh, before I get to the last paradox. In Romans chapter 8, I mentioned this earlier, that I've noticed something in chapter 8, and I want us to think about this. 
chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I like the idea there, that, that, that symbolism of walking. It needs to become involuntary. We don't, we, we don't think about we've got to do this or we've got to do that, but we automatically, because of our relationship with God, we walk. We, we involuntarily are, are taking a step by step by step in God's way and his, his will and his way. So we walk, it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, carefully listen to this, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he didn't say he was in sinful, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. He demonstrated that a person in the flesh could live righteous. That was his mission. He came to an example of, of uh, showing us the virtues of God in human flesh. And he did that. And he condemned sin in the flesh because he proved that it doesn't have to happen. Now, he goes on to say that the righteousness of the law this is something that we, we lose sight of sometimes. The law we think of is something that went away. But he says that God came to, uh, Jesus came to show the righteousness of the law. It might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And so he's expecting us to walk in righteousness. And that righteousness is actually still the law of God. The law that God laid out in the Old Testament is that anvil. It's that standard of rightness. And he still expects us to live by that. But he shows us how. By the grace of God in the relationship with Jesus Christ that we do it by his spirit working in us. Now the last paradox is the conclusion. The, paradox, the eternal paradox. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more ex exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we, are, while we look not at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The paradox, the eternal paradox is that what we see is not what we need to make it on God's terms. But we need to be able to see with our, our spiritual perspective and, and put things in an eternal perspective in our thinking, in our understanding, God perspective. Then we have the true perspective of our experience and what God wants and the way to bring him glory and honor and to experience the joy and the happiness, the fulfillment that God created us to experience. It's still possible. It's still ours. But we need to be careful and be aware that it doesn't happen as we pick up the, we pick up the uh, the flesh and try to experience the flesh, and bring that happiness by our own uh, rational design and desire, it's it's surrender to God's will, allow the sufferings that come in our life, to indicate to us the needs that are there, and also sometimes the choice to go with God brings some suffering temporarily, and it helps us see where we are and what we need to submit to. So. I just want to encourage us to, to allow suffering to have its perfect work of chastening us into the, 
to the reality of, of fulfillment that God desires. He wants us righteous. He wants us beautiful. And we should look in the mirror, God's word, to see what's out of order and allow the suffering of that to help us correct what we see in the mirror and become beautiful again to God and to others. May God bless you. Let's bow our head for prayer. Father, we thank you for your love that brought salvation down to man. We thank you for your mercy that made it possible that we could experience the provision of grace. We have that power, that spirit power that allows us to experience the relationship with you that brings you joy and brings us uh, joy as well. And so, Father, we just pray, help us to experience the revival, day-to-day -day revival that you want in our lives, that, that we can experience your will and purpose for us and for the, the church as a whole. We pray, add your blessing for your glory, and we thank you for all you do. Help us to see it from the way you see it and allow it to bring about your purposes. We commit ourselves to you. Thank you in Jesus' worthy name. All right, let's, let's have a closing song. Did you? 280.